Welcome to Story Smack. Hello, junkies. This is your friendly neighborhood FDO. This episode of Story Smack was recorded as a live stream. We have since stripped out the audio and we have edited it down. For this live stream, we were all wearing costumes because it was Halloween. I've done my best to go through and edit out the uh, costume-related stuff, which won't play very well in audio, but there might still be some in there. And we were, it was our first pre-scheduled live stream, so we didn't know if people were going to be on. You may hear occasional references to me checking to make sure we're on YouTube, Facebook, Twitch, Etc. So I've tried to cut out some of that, but most of the content about this amazing movie, The Shining, is still in there. It's a lot of fun, the discussion between me and A and our first ever guest on Story Smack, Mr. Robert Otto, the Empty Set Movie Maven. So bear with any of the non-sequitur references to costumes or streaming, all that other crap, and just sit back and enjoy. This is episode 58 of Story Smack, a podcast about stories and storytellers in the world of pop culture. My name is A.B. Sigler, audiobook narrator and founding partner at Empty Set Entertainment. And my name is Scott Sigler, number one New York Times bestselling novelist. We are discussing The Shining today, and we have our first live guest. We have our first live guest, ladies and gentlemen, the winner of four Academy Awards for Best Tookus, which he won in 1986. Best Upper Thigh, which he won in 94. Best Fake Mustache from 2008. And of course, the most recent one, Best Stink Eye, which he won in 2019. It is the Empty Set Movie Maven. Let's see. We're bringing our first guest. Well, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Robert Otto. <laughs> Yay! First Hi. of all, baby, do you, we're talking about 1980, The Shining, directed by Stanley Kubrick. A um, Kubrick, excuse me. Mm-hmm. I keep calling him confusing with Kubert. It's Stanley Kubert. Um, this is, we are in the 40th anniversary of this movie. It is a seminal work of horror. The Shining is possibly the best-known Stephen King book, mm-hmm. best-selling Stephen King book up there along with Carrie and maybe Cujo. And, of course, this movie made the book all the more famous and has become a cultural icon, uh, somewhat from a literary perspective, but from a movie perspective, without question. It's one of the most mimicked, emulated movies ever. There was a whole sequence from Ready Player One that brought people back to the Overlook, for example. It goes all the time. And it was yet one more of the things that made uh, Jack Nicholson's career so awesome. But babe, do you have any box office? I do. Um, uh, Opening weekend, it made $622,000. It was uh, shot for nineteen. Million dollars, oh and we'll get into a few of the reasons why. That's an outrageous amount in 1980, mm-hmm. and uh, part of the reason for that is is Kubrick's long and storied um, uh, every handling every single tiny piece yeah. of of everything he filmed. So okay. it's 19 million dollars. It was the budget. It eventually went on to to gross. Um, 44 point something million, 44.1 million or something like that. Um, so it made money in theaters when it came out. It did, yeah. And um, and you mentioned this is a famous Stephen King book. Stephen King did not like this movie. I found yeah. out just today, Rob, you might already know this. Um, I just found today that uh, if you guys don't know, there's also a miniseries that was on TV a handful of years later and Stephen King worked closely because he he didn't like the shining so much the movie that he he actually partially funded this and everything else to get it to get it made the the um the miniseries but the kubrick estate insisted cuz he had to get permission insisted that he stop dogging the movie 
in public. <laughs> I have never known I did that. Not know Me that. neither. Uh, yeah, I love that's it. Awesome. Yeah. This movie, the fact that Stephen hated it so much, is why after this movie he said no more. I'm either going to be a partial producer mm-hmm. or have script, um, you know, approval or mm-hmm. something on every project I do from here on out because Kubrick sta- changed the movie a lot hmm. from mm-hmm. the book. And we'll get into some of that as we go. We'll get into that. Uh, everybody hold tight. I'm going to double check to see if we're live on YouTube. You may hear it. It sounds like we are. Somebody said we were. Kubrick- yeah. There we go. We are live. But yep. we are not... Um, we are not seeing the YouTube comments on our normal chat integration app that brings in Facebook and Twitch and YouTube. So uh, we will respond to those as best I can, but I'm not seeing those where I normally see those. So when Rob is talking, which Rob is very good at doing, I will swing over. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> um, Real quick update. Rob and I have known each other since, I believe, our sophomore year in Junior. high school. What's that? Junior year of high Junior school. Year of high school. Uh, we, have, uh, we are lifelong friends. We have been buddies a very long time. And uh, I'm very fortunate to have friends like Rob and our clique from high school that we still chat with each other every day. We were just chatting today about uh, Michigan State's upset over Michigan because we're no, all huge. No, that huge. doesn't happen. Keep talking. <laughs> I'm stuck in a horror movie. Ah! <laughs> and uh, John, thank you. John Viscar, as always, to the rescue. I can see YouTube comments in the chat. Uh, so we're good to go, ladies and gentlemen. Hold on, John. Let's get into this. So we, we've got the box office info. Let's talk about this absolutely phenomenal cast in this movie uh we may lose rob's face but we will have rob's voice of course none other than jack nicholson is jack torrance mm-hmm. reportedly kubrick's kubrick's damn it number let's just call him kubrick from now on why don't you call him stanley stanley nice nice baby stanley's number one choice for jack uh he ad-libbed the line here's johnny in the bathroom mm-hmm. scene door. Yeah. Uh, Kubrick was famous for wanting interactivity mm-hmm. and he, which is crazy for how possessive he was about every single other thing about his movies. Okay. He was interactive with the actors and uh, that was unscripted and impromptu and turns out to be one of the more uh, famous uh, things in the movie. I also found today um, that uh this movie, we'll, you, we'll learn a little, little bit later, didn't get any Oscar nominations at all. Wow. But wow, they wow, had wow. talked about, like, gosh, listen, if this gets nominated and Jack wins, he has to say, here's Johnny. Like, he, <laughs> that's the first thing he has to say. And I guess that was hubris because they never they didn't get nominated for a single Golden Globe or, um, yeah, yeah. or Oscar. Rob, the other interesting story about that line, um, yep. Kubrick didn't really watch television, so he didn't <laughs> know that was a pop culture reference. He just thought it was something that Jack made up on the spot. I <laughs> thought, oh, that's good. Yeah, he had no idea that it was a freaking Johnny Carson line. And so he just went with it. Uh, let's see here. Nicholson was nominated for an Oscar every decade between 1960 and the early 2000s, much like Rob. Yep. But he did not win for Best Stink Eye, which Rob did win. And other, what other uh, major movies, baby? Um, well, that, this is the thing. So, so many. Well, Jack Nicholson and Stanley Kubrick both. You will be familiar with so many. I can't. I couldn't even name Jack Nicholson's most famous roles. Some of them. Chinatown, As Good As It Gets, The Departed, Five Easy Pieces, um, The Last Detail. He was very young in both of those. They're both wonderful movies if you haven't seen them. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, of course. Of course. Terms of Endearment, Heartburn, A Few Good Men, Wolf, which I loved even though it was terrible. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was terrible. Uh, the Crossing Guard, which was one of his uh, one of the last films that he late, late. He's, I think his last movie was Wait, in he's 2010. Not dead, is he? No, he's not, oh, but good. he's not. 
he hasn't. I don't think he's been in a movie since 2010. Okay. Um, maybe at a lot of Lakers games, but not at a lot of movies. <laughs> in a lot of movies, but also um, the Crossing Guard, wonderful, wonderful movie about Schmidt. Wonderful movie. I think mm-hmm. that might have been his last award. I'm not really sure. I okay. think he won for that. Okay. And then, of course, we have the female lead from the movie. Possibly the most famous role she's ever done, Miss Shelley Duvall. Um, she joined the cast. Her olive oil. Yeah, <laughs> that was a good one. She joined. I think. And uh, speaking of that, Rob and I saw Popeye in the theater uh, together, True. and it was, we were very angry at the logical, <laughs> the logical inconsistencies of one buying a hamburger today and paying for it next Tuesday. I was furious. That's what you were furious about. <laughs> that is what you Nobody's had. ever given me a free hamburger. Come on. <laughs> uh, we're going to let Rob talk a little bit about a Shelley Duvall's experience on the set. However, she joined the cast at 28 years old. She was subject to lots of psychological trauma during the shoot. Shoot, uh, Rob, tell us a little bit about her experience on the set. Yeah. There, Stanley Kubrick, and it's odd, he didn't do this with all of his actors. He had a really, you know, peaceable exchange, some with Jack Nicholson, but he was kind of a jerk mostly. But to okay. Shelley Duvall, he made a conscious decision to like hit her with psychological warfare. He wanted her to be freaked out when she was shooting her scenes. And so he was just a complete dick to her mm-hmm. the whole time. I mean, like really trying to rattle her every time he could so that her performance would show that she was mentally shaken and that things weren't quite right. I mean, he would do stuff. He made her do over a hundred takes on specific scenes and over and over again. Um, Kubrick's daughter, Vivian, actually shot a very short behind-the-scenes movie. Mm-hmm. You can find it online. It's only like 25, 30 minutes long, right? So it doesn't show a lot, but it shows one scene where Shelley Duvall, it's the scene where after she uh, takes the... Oh, are we supposed to say something about spoilers? People know there's spoilers, right? <laughs> On this one, there's It's there's 40 years spoilers. old, it's fine. It's and 40 we, years old. If you haven't seen it yet, it, it's your fault. And we mine. almost okay. always remember but, to say that sort of right now. <laughs> so good, so, thanks. Uh, Spoiler alert. So when Shelly takes Danny out the bathroom window and lets him slide down the snow and she can't get out, she's trying to get through the window, but it's too small. Um, There's a scene that Vivian shot in between takes where Shelly Duvall is sitting outside the bathroom and she's had pieces of her hair in her hand. Mm -hmm. And she's like, Stanley, the window is pulling the hair out of my head. And she said, clumps of hair are falling out. And he takes like the three strands of long black hair, takes them from her and says, clumps. Like, <laughs> like three pieces of hair wasn't enough for him to worry about. And then as he walks away, she pulls more hair out of her head. But she was just psychologically traumatized by Stanley Kubrick. And I think you can see that in her performance. And I do think that some folks, uh, especially at the time and since, certainly people have kind of complained that her performance was not terribly good. And, you know, a a lot of times people. Yeah, but but a lot of times people assume that an actor is is good because they are much like that role. And mm-hmm. and this mm-hmm. actually shows us that if you don't let a, per, a, a professional do their job mm-hmm. and you assault them nonstop, th- this is the sort of thing that can happen. While I do believe that she did look befuddled and scared and traumatized, I'm not sure, sure she couldn't have done... You don't need to do adu- that to a real person. You, right. That's her job is to right. look that right. way and, as an actor. And as Rob mentioned, um, the scene where she's got the baseball bat... Yep. 
He he. Kubrick made her film 127 the, times the going in a row. backwards up the stairs with a baseball bat. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. 127 wow. times in a row, and Does by the mean- time she was done, her hands were raw from from having to move the bat. Move the bat. Wow! Like you do when you wow, dig wow, too wow. much with a with a shovel wow, or whatever. Wow, wow. Yeah. Did, now did Jack have to do that scene with her 127 times, or was it? Oh, do you have any idea? I, I don't know, but I know from the camera on her that was 127 takes. Okay. Yeah. He, yeah. he would shoot. Kubrick would shoot a lot of single camera shots and you see it in the movie the way it's edited together so he had just one camera as if it was jack's perspective following her up the stairs while she's backing up and swinging it made her do that scene backing up the stairs and swinging the baseball bat over 120 times yeah and you know she she was olive oil but she didn't thrive in Hollywood. She retired. Oh. She did some producing work. She did okay. some kids shows. She did stuff like that. She retired in 2002 mm-hmm. and she was in 2016. She was on the, uh, the Dr. Phil show. Dr. Phil. And she was so obviously mentally unstable that Virginia Kubrick, yeah. who has been estranged from her family. She joined the Church of Scientology and became estranged from her family. She hasn't even didn't go to her sister's funeral in 2009. But in 2016, she wrote a fantastic scathing email wow. or a letter saying, how, how fucking dare you? How dare She's you? obviously unstable. She didn't deserve that. Mm. Nobody, uh, mm-hmm. this is not, this is not doing something for your art. My, you know, my dad was a dick. She was abused and you should help her not exploit her. Right. And, um, after right. that, the, um, the uh, the chair the actors charity, the actors, uh, actors guilt. Thing, yeah. Um, uh, did get her treatment, but she hasn't been seen in public since then. Uh, I also just realized, you guys, that my um, my Dr. Phil impression sounds a lot like Buffalo Bill from Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> so you got you got a psychological condition. Would you tell me about that, Rob's? I mean, Rob, I'm not sure you're wrong. Is she a very tall, skinny person. <laughs> <laughs> All right, back to the actors, ladies and gentlemen, and of course. The man, the myth, the legend himself, Stanley Kubrick, part of the New Hollywood movement. He is frequently cited as one of the greatest and most influential directors in, in the history of cinema. Baby, he made a bunch of movies. Yeah, here's the thing. He made, I think, altogether like 16 films. Uh, Films uh, that he controlled altogether. Mm-hmm. He was part of tw- uh, the Internet tells me he was part of 24, but I don't know what those 24 were. OK. What's more important to me about how many movies he made is how many you'll be like, oh, I love that movie. Oh, God, I hated that movie. There's so many that you'll remember. Um, a Clockwork Orange, Full Metal Jacket, oh God, 2001 yes. A Space Odyssey, Doctor mm-hmm. Strangelove or How Spartacus. I Learned it. What? Spartacus. Yeah, Lolita. Get the fuck out of here. I didn't yeah. know he did Spartacus. And, you know, he was very invested in all of them um uh his last nine movies are 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 kind of his over i don't know how to say that word it's called it's called a hoobie doobie okay yeah <laughs> at least it's not just me um <laughs> but this one which is so well um it, it holds the the world's attention 40 years later yeah um is the only one of his last nine that didn't get a, any the only awards it got is Scatman Carruthers won a Saturn Award Saturn for Award. Best Supporting okay. Actor, and that's okay. it. It was also, 1980 was also the first year of the Razzies, mm-hmm. and uh, Kubrick won for directing this. <laughs> but oh that's not gosh. a real, I mean, not exactly a real award. <laughs> yeah, but still, that's how, I think what it was, that a lot of people that are Stephen King fans mm-hmm. hate this movie. Because yeah. it is so not connected to the book. It's very, right? it's I mean, very it's loosely connected, yeah. Uh, yeah, a lot of directions that Kubrick took it in, 
the book makes it obvious that the problem is the Overlook Hotel, and it is driving these absolutely sane people uh, insane. Yeah. Whereas the movie starts out because it's Jack Nicholson, because he's just coming off one flew over the cuckoo's nest. You already start out thinking that Jack's a little insane because mm-hmm. that's the performance he gives mm-hmm. and that he falls into the insanity, maybe helped by the hotel, but maybe he's the one that drags the hotel into the insanity. So that's that's why a lot of fans don't like it, because the the John Torrance in the book mm-hmm. is a, a, an average sane person. Now, he does have the problem with Danny before the book starts. Mm-hmm. I, I admit I did not remember that in the book. It's yeah. John Torrance, not Jack Torrance. It's, it's John, John Jack. Torrance in the book. Exactly. John Jack. Yeah. yeah, that's my that's my power. Um, and I mean, there's stuff. There's no hedge maze, but there's like hedge creatures that come to life. Yep. Yep. And so it's just very obvious that there is some supernatural stuff going on. With uh, the exception of one or maybe two instances in the movie, you could say everything happens in those three people's minds. Mm-hmm. Maybe everything, okay. maybe there is nothing about the hotel mm-hmm. and it's all happening in their heads with one or two exceptions that I'll get into later. Okay. You can spell everything off that they're just seeing things and physically nothing's actually Baby, happening. tell them about the maze, the uh, maze situation. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, in, in putting together this script, uh, you have been to the... I've, I've uh, been to the hotel. The Stan- Stanley? The Stanley Hotel, yes. I only killed four idea. people. I only killed four people at the Stanley, so I'm not even on their list. But when you were there, there was no maze. There was historically no, no maze. In Correct. 2015, the Stanley Hotel started building a maze, which mm. I kind of love because so oh, many people would show it? Yeah, because so many people would oh, show up cool. and be disappointed. So I don't know if it's finished yet, but they started it in 2015. Uh, just to close out, um, Stanley Kubrick. Yep. Uh, his last movie was Eyes Wide Shut. Wow. Um, wow. Uh, but he, he, he finished, he, he had a screening for the cast and friends and family six days before he died of a heart attack in his sleep. So it it very truly was his late, his last great, uh, passion and focus and obsession. Mm -hmm. Um, and I personally, I, I think it's kind of sad because it's sort of, it's, had he made it 30 years before, it would be this tight, sexual, psychological thriller. And instead, right. it was just creepy old man. It was uh, a creepy old man playing out the fantasies he, can't, he can no longer do. And I felt really bad. I feel that very bad every time I see it. A couple of comments from the chat room. Yes, let's see. Uh, there is a school. Uh, Vaughn says there's a school of thought that says there was no supernatural at all. It was all just Jack going nuts, mm-hmm. which works. If you go back and watch it again, we watched it last night, had a blast. Good date night. Fabulous movie. Holds up really well. Yeah, the whole thing could be in his head. Like, you know, the bruises on the kid's neck, he could have done that, and I remembered it. The mm-hmm. kid's, uh, kid's catatonic, et cetera. And then a couple more comments about how Stephen King hated this, which we talked about early, but then they did the TV movie with the guy from Wings, and it was, uh, wasn't yeah. that bad. Yeah, it wasn't that bad. And also, there's... Um there's an idea there's so we're, we'll talk about a handful of the theories and, and ideas and themes in the shining but okay. um there's also the idea that jack um yeah I, I, rob mentioned it that that jack uh one of the reasons that stephen king hated it so much is that jack was supposed to be every man mm. and jack nicholson is very clearly not an every man he's uh, he's very good at that job he's got that eyebrow he's got all that yeah. stuff and he wasn't a tim daly which we'll is, get, I wonder what, you know, yeah, see? <laughs> there you go. We'll get back to the cast in a second. And we'll point out, as a huge fan of that book, I every time I see it, I keep waiting for one of Stephen King's most famous lines is, 
I believe it's what is or what an officious little prick. And that is either the opening line to the uh, to the Shining, or it's it's the opening part of that interview. And it oh, thanks, babe. I forgot all about that. Hold on. Boom. I still can't see you, Scott. You're blending in with the background. You're invisible. Why do you need a light? Well, now my incredibly white face is uh, is front (laughs) front and center. So every time I watch The Shining, I go into the interview waiting to see an actor perform the officious little prick role, and the guy who hires Jack John in the beginning of the movie, not officious little prick at all. Like, he's just a regular old good guy. Mm. By the way, several people died here. Thought you should know. Yeah. All right, let's get back to the uh, let's get back yeah, to the cast. Just, just, you know, I'm just going to toss that out in conversation. <laughs> well, and I will say... Uh, the fact that Jack doesn't really react to that story, he's just like, oh, yes, I believe I heard something about that, but that won't be me. And it's just like, yeah, well, this dude's already crazy. I can see what Stephen King had a problem with. A lot of Stephen King's early work involves, it's right what you know, aside from the supernatural batshit crazy devil stuff. A lot of his stuff is about creators, authors, people with right. substance abuse issues. Yep. And... This movie speaks to me as a professional writer in a couple ways, which we're going to get to a little later on. But number one is I also, if I had been in that position as an unpublished author looking to get paid to have five months to focus on finishing a book, he, he, they could have told me like, well, a lot of people died here and you'll probably have to kill at least one person from town who comes up, but that's how we'll get you out and be like, I don't care. Five months isolated where I get to write all day long and get paid for that. You can see that's one of the, the, one of the really subtle things Jack brings his performance is I felt he captured what it's like to be a struggling author and all of the frustrations and interest and the things you will do to get time to create that work that might be able to move you to the next level. So I thought that was pretty cool. Plus, you you can relate because of your six previous wives who all died during a case of writer's block, right? Is that, oh, yeah, yeah. I have not said that out loud. I, <laughs> well, Rob, uh, when I told you Rob's known me since high school, that's a lie. I met him last week. He doesn't know anything. <laughs> I will also say before we move off of Kubrick that um, he instigated quite a lot of the subterfuge about what the point, you know, whether or not there was evil, whether or not there was supernatural. Over the 10 years that the, or I guess the five years after the movie came out, mm-hmm. uh, whenever he was interviewed about it, as and whenever he was interviewed about it, he would say, um, sometimes, like, there's, uh, there's, there's nothing supernatural about it. It's Jack losing his mind. Cool. Or he would say, the Overlook Hotel is evil. He would just keep messing with people. Or he would yeah. say, obviously, yeah. there's supernatural elements at the, at the Overlook Hotel, and right. he would fuck with people. Let's Before go. We get off oh, of Cooper, Stephen Weber. Yeah. Go ahead, Rob. Hopefully... Kubrick had out over 200 IQ mm-hmm. and the story about Kubrick is that there's never a mistake in one of his movies that everything that's there, even if it seems like a mistake, he meant it to be there, which I think Scott exactly <laughs> is a bunch of BS that people believe to roll over mistakes. For instance, there's this, the scene where um, Wendy and Jack are talking when he's typing and he's yelling at her for interrupting his work. Yeah. And sometimes it cuts to Jack. There's a chair against the wall behind him. And then sometimes it cuts to Jack and there is no chair against the wall mm-hmm. behind him. And I think when you're doing 120 freaking takes of something mm-hmm. that someone's going to move something and not notice it. And so yeah. this idea that Kubrick, you know, egged on himself that the reason the chair moves is because you're realizing that the hotel is obviously messing with these people. No, no somebody moved no. the fucking chair. Okay. Uh, and that's what it is. I, com- and, I completely agree with that. It, but 
That's, you know what it was? It's like, God damn it, Steve, did you forget to load film on the camera again? Fuck! Everybody reset tomorrow. We're going to come so out look, tomorrow. So look, exactly I am... Right. I think I, that's exactly what it is. I absolutely agree with that. At the same time, he uh, he purposefully planted mistakes like that. Yeah, sure. There's a three-story tall tree outside the Stanley Hotel, mm-hmm. which he moved on purpose. <laughs> on purpose. What? Yeah, so you see it sometimes by the front door and sometimes not by the front door. He flipping uprooted wow. a hundred foot okay, tall that's tree. That's not a mistake. That's not. Yeah. I have to. I have to rewind. Yeah, I have to rewind no, no, my stroke no, no. off. I don't disagree. I think Rob is right. Obviously, not every single thing. Uh, not everything. But, but, but he something. was anal retentive about everything. I mean, supposedly he moved stuff on the shelves in the dry storage room, mm-hmm. so some things would be seen. You know, like the tang and. The mm-hmm. Calumet baking powder. Mm-hmm. Supposedly that has a meaning. Well, that's supposed to tie into all the Native American art, right? Which exactly is, right. and we're going to talk uh, a little bit about we'll some about of these that. things. I but- think uh, Andrea Miller in the chat, Andrea Minor in the chat room has it. Uh, Kubrick just started the rumors himself. Oh, tons and tons. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and fomented them. Listen, Go, there was rumors after 2001: A Space Odyssey that that was his dry run for him. Um, directing the footage of the fake moon landing. Oh, my God. During The Shining, Mm -hmm. he puts Danny in an Apollo 11 hand-knitted sweater, you know, during one scene just to say, like, maybe it's true. (laughs) 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 All right, let's get back to the actors. Stephanie Murphy, you totally win the internet today. She says the tree just gets up and leaves. Oh, come on, Stephanie Murphy. (laughs) Listen, all puns are my responsibility in this show. Thank you very much. Let's talk about the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Scatman Crothers. I will tell you this, that my my father was so impressed with Scatman Crothers, who is a he's not well as well known today, but back in the, 40 years ago, he was a major, major entertainment phenomenon. Like, he could do all this great stuff. He was delightful, delightful to watch, amazing performer. My nickname was Scatman back in the day hmm. because of Scatman Crothers. Oh, really? Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah, I Robbie. never knew that. Wow. Yeah, I was, uh, and I've gone by, uh, around the home front, it was only Scott when I was in a lot of trouble. Most of the time, it was brains. Scott Carl. Would you get Scott <laughs> Carl when it got really bad? When mom would go, Scott Carl Sigler, I'd be like, well, that's it. I'm fucked. I wouldn't say that out loud because that would just make it worse. But I knew I knew that uh, I knew the warden had arrived, and I went by Scott occasionally. Scatman at home, and my favorite brains. Mm-hmm. That was my, my nickname. Do your was folks brains. still call you brains? Because uh, I, you know, I got a giant dome, as you can see from this. <laughs> I got no, you can see Scott. You're invisible. You're blending in with the office. Yes. Uh-oh. All right. Let's get back to Scatman Crothers. A little bit about this gentleman. Uh, also, go on YouTube, look up Scatman Crothers singing a song about Stanley Kubrick. He is uh, more than triple threat. Scatman was a singer, songwriter, actor, composer, comedian, guitarist. He was close friends with Jack Nicholson. They appeared together in four. I did not know this. Yeah. Tell me, baby. Uh, Sorry. He, he appeared in four movies with, yeah. with Jack Nicholson. They were truly friends in, in real life. Okay. Uh, he was obviously in The Shining. He was in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, The Fortune, mm. and The King of Marvin Gardens. Sorry about that. That's okay. Um, with Obviously with Nicholson in all of those movies. And uh, he is the only recipient of a nice, lovely award for The Shining. <laughs> Literally the only crazy. one. Uh, Shelley Duvall and Stanley Kubrick both got nominated and 
I think Kubrick won the first Razzie for best director. Do you think? Do you think? Uh, do you think Sam talk shit about that? He would go over to Jack's house and be like, "Well, I like all these Academy Awards, but you didn't get nominated for The Shining. <laughs> I, did. I wrote a song about it. Would you like to hear? Yeah, it? Here it go. goes. <laughs> I'm do a little dance. Watch this. I this, don't think this he is my did. award dance that you didn't win jack shit. I didn't. Uh, he seems like he was an absolutely lovely man. And oh, uh, uh, and uh, performance wise, Rob, I want to get your take on this. What was fascinating to me about Scatman Crothers' performance, when he is acting with another human being in that film, it's great. Especially the, the, the ice cream scene with Danny is like, yeah. it just it's, it sends chills. He, he communicates so many things at so many different levels in that conversation while trying to be positive. It's like, nothing to fear. What about 237? Okay, well, yeah, maybe fear that a little bit. But when By the way, when over you, 80 takes. Oh, really? Made uh, Scatman do that one. Wow. Just his one shot over 80 times. No wonder it's so turned out so good. But then you see him every time he's on the phone. Those are terrible. They're just yeah. they're just terrible. So stilted. <laughs> it's so it's so. Oh yes, uh, yes. I am the chef at the <laughs> hotel. I'm just wondering if you talk to the people up there any time recently. It was no? crazy. Oh, oh it but was here, crazy. But here's the thing. Going back to let's just stir up controversy. Let's just stir up stuff. Everybody, uh-huh. th- there is a theory that part of that is that, of course. Uh, we should have said this sooner. The Shining refers to this ability to sort of, of know paranormal futurist things, to know things. And Scatman has The Shining, and so does Danny have The Shining. And there's some uh, question about whether or not Jack had The Shining and never quite understood it. But okay. Danny and Scatman, or Danny, I'm sorry, and, and Dick Holleran, they see each they see it in each other. And mm-hmm. so there is a, a theory that... It's because he's trying to parse out what's happening. He feels the shining from Danny asking for help. So that's what drives Jack crazy? No, 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 no. That's why he's so stilted when he's at home. Okay. It's like, I I don't know. Maybe you can't call and say, hey, is the the hotel okay? He has to formulate that shining feeling into a question. Okay. I, again, feel like this is overreaching. Like yeah, again, he I was just not that good of a theory on this one. Is Scatman Crothers cannot act on a phone? I think it's <laughs> yes, yes. Theory. he's not a monologist for sure. <laughs> but oh, he's so so good. It's just such a weird discrepancy to watch him just kill those in person scenes, like it, like stealing the scene left and right. Mm-hmm. Then when he's on the phone, you're like, this is not your this was not your skill set at that particular time. In the climate ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus.
Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk about the young lad, Danny Lloyd, who was just a goddamn rock star in this movie. Mm -hmm. As far as child actors go, what's crazy is this, he did this movie, then he played a young... I forgot already. He he played. He did some. He did some TV stuff. Little and then stuff. He had a uh, like a cameo in Doctor Sleep, which is the sequel. Yep. yep. Uh-huh. But he just wrote. had a nonverbal cameo. But he he did. He did two movies. This is the big one. He crushed this film. He was so good in this as that catatonic little kid. He must have been very receptive to taking direction yes. and been a very good listener and a very good emulator rock star. Then he drops out, and I bet you're wondering. I bet you're wondering this. What does Danny look like now? I wonder what Danny looks uh, like I wonder, now. I, I, I know. I was, I was just wondering, what, do, what does Danny look like now? This is what Danny looks like now. Still clearly the same guy, but isn't that weird? You see? I know, but look at his eyes. Yeah. It's amazing. Same dude. That's amazing. He is a science teacher in Missouri. And uh, Rob, what are, your thoughts on, uh, what are your thoughts on Mr. Danny, Danny's performance? Here's the interesting thing, and, and Danny has said this in interviews after this. He didn't know he was making a horror movie. <laughs> he just thought he was making like what? a family. Like, I know it seems crazy, <laughs> but when you're five years old, I guess apparently you believe anything an adult tells you. Sure. He thought he was making like a, a family drama, like a TV movie of the week kind of thing or mm-hmm. something. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he had no idea. Mm-hmm. Cool thing about a Danny Lloyd, he came up with the idea of Tony having a different voice. Tony, the little boy that lived really? inside his mouth. Mm-hmm. Yes. Danny Lloyd also came up with this. Get the oh, fuck that's out cool. of here. I didn't know that. Hello, Mrs. Torrance. Danny's yes. not here. Uh, yeah. That it was Danny's it was his idea here. to have Tony talk from his finger. Wow. Neat. Wow. Clever uh, stuff. And Kubrick saw it and said, absolutely, that's exactly sold. what we're gonna do. A five year old kid that had the idea. Fantastic. That, that conflates with the myth that Kubrick did everything and had it all pre-planned. Doesn't work mm-hmm. out. Doesn't work out. I will say, I... Uh, Kenny Lloyd does have a, a, a Grandpa Munster oh, he's hairline, terrifying. for sure. I've got a... Um, yeah, he, a, doesn't, he doesn't still have the uh, the Prince Valiant haircut anymore. <laughs> no, he doesn't have I have a... Same uh, haircut I had as a child, by the way. I'd a like talking that finger that I used to terrorize one of our dogs, except it's not a talking finger, it's a talking chicken. And I'll come up to the, I'll come up to the dog and be like... She hates it. And she just. It would be okay if I talked with this finger, <laughs> but not this one, because trust me, you don't know where this finger has been. I'm just. I kind of knew that was coming. All right, that is our cast. We've talked about awards. Now it's time to talk about the movie itself. I will lead off. What I like a lot about this movie is the first 20 minutes, which I think almost 
everyone who went to see the movie in the theaters. Remember, there wasn't home. There wasn't yeah. streaming at that time. You had to go see some legs in the theater. I'm not even sure how much VHS was kicking around 1980. But the first 20 not minutes, you're going to the movie because it's a Stephen King book. It's Jack Nicholson. It's you know, Shelley Duvall. There's a lot of reasons. Stanley Kubrick. There's a lot of reasons to pull you into the theater. But as a storyteller, you only have so much time. You have so many minutes. You have so many pages, etc., to really hook the viewer. And what they do in the first 20 minutes is kind of a master class. The isolation is very set up. And a lot of this is from the book. They just took it straight from the book. At 9 minutes and 50 seconds, you get the drop out. Oh, by the way, one of the last caretakers killed his wife and two daughters with an axe. And you get to see, you get the dark setup of the movie. And also you could see uh, Jack Torrance just being like, whatevs, doesn't bother me. Then at 11.50, we throw in some just old school, which now looks very shocky, schlocky, the foreshadowing of the two twin girls and the elevator full of blood. We get spooky Danny with he just tunes out and he has a little finger voice. And then at 17 minutes in, we find out that Jack Torrance is a potentially violent, drunk, a dangerous person when he's intoxicated. And it's pretty clearly established, even though it's not said at that point, we're going to be isolated in this place for five minutes. And this is the biggest, strongest, angriest person in the place. And if the child or the wife, which is probably why they cast Shelley Duvall, it's just so mm-hmm. so scrawny, so thin, you know shit's going to go wrong. You know it's going to be Jack going wrong. And you are already anticipating the terror of being stuck in a place from which there is no escape, there is no help, and this psychopath is wandering around. Well, yeah. And, you know, the thing is, uh, I do agree with you about the physical difference. Mm -hmm. But also, I think it's an interesting um, and I think Stephen King did this, honestly. um, uh, Wendy and Danny together are a have a thing that Jack doesn't have. They trust each other. Jack doesn't even trust himself. So when you combine Danny and Wendy, they are more formidable than they are alone, which is, of course, very relevant to how the movie plays out. And as Jack starts to trust himself less, they start Mm. to trust each other more. Mm. And uh, I find that very compelling because they're sort of a vol- like a like a tri- like a Voltron like a they they come together and save themselves from Jack and and the Overlook and the Shining and uh, all the I forgot something. We had a quick write in the script. Rob wanted to talk about the opening music, which I think uh, Vaughn just talked about. It. Rob, that opening music. I will tell you this real quick. I watched it and I'm like, oh, that's a cool synthesizer cut. And I so then we use. Um, Amazon Prime's drill down feature, whatever it is, and go in and find it's the Boston Symphony Orchestra. It was not synthesizer. Rob, tell us about that music. So um, the music is called Dies Irae, and it's an old Franciscan uh, funeral march kind of thing. It's actually a very popular piece of music. You will find it in movies like the original Star Wars when Luke Mm. Skywalker finds his aunt and uncle die. It gets under kind of the hero Mm -hmm. music. Um, when Mufasa dies in Lion King, this music appears um, in uh, It's a Wonderful Life. This music appears when he's crying uh, on, mm-hmm. on the bridge right before he comes back to real life. It's a... It's right over that opening scene, which the opening scene, you know, when it flies over that lake, this was shot in uh, Montana. Um, by the way, Kubrick hated to fly. So any of the helicopter shots, mm-hmm. he's not the director. It's the second unit director that's doing all the <laughs> helicopter shots because Kubrick would not get in a helicopter. Also, he hated shooting outside of the UK. Yeah. So any of the exterior shots that were shot in Oregon or Montana 
were all not Kubrick, by the way. Like the, the car driving through the mountains to get to the Overlook, all second unit director because Kubrick would not shoot in the United States. Anyway, what? So I know. Born in crazy. Brooklyn. It's crazy. Born Everything in was shot he in would, Europe. He would. He would. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the music itself is about uh, the day of wrath, the day of judgment. That's what the Franciscans wrote this piece for. And that's why it was used at a lot of funerals about the day that, you know, God comes down and decides who goes to heaven and who else just rots in hell. Mm-hmm. And so the shot itself, you know, flying over that mirror lake in Montana, it's a gorgeous shot. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. A long Stunning. winding road with the yellow, little yellow Volkswagen bug. Gorgeous. Mm-hmm. If you put some light and breezy, you know, walking on sunshine music on there, <laughs> it would be a wonderful, hey, this is going to be a great movie. Instead, you get DSE Ray, and you just know, oh, shit is about to go down. <laughs> this is, <laughs> I feel uncomfortable. There's something wrong. And all it is is a beautiful lake with the sun reflected and the sky yeah, reflected yeah. in the lake. It should be calming and gorgeous. And instead, just because of that piece of music, it's disconcerting and sets the stage for the whole movie. Yep. It just makes you feel uncomfortable. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's like it's know something's wrong. It, you're, you get you nail it. It's like having Chris Rock in your ear, or not Chris Rock, having Kevin Hart in your ear. Like it's the shit's about to go down, and you know, like yeah, it's it's really, really, really strong. Really or strong, Chris Rock going. Shrek, I'm a donkey. <laughs> no, that's a different movie. Okay. Sorry. But I will also say, um, because you get that lead in, um, uh-huh. then the first time you see the Torrance family, um, one of the first things that happens is Danny says, I'm hungry. And Jack well, you instantly says, we well, you should have eaten your breakfast. And yep. Mama is like, we'll get you something when we get to the hotel. Also would have felt entirely different and not as threatening had it not had that lead in, mm. had it not in had that, that long that two seconds, five words, you should have eaten breakfast. You know, fucking Jack hates this little kid, Damn. right? He was <laughs> ruining his life. This little kid, he can't even get past him not eating freaking breakfast. You know but what that, I mean? That's an everyman moment. Like I, I'm sure I had that exact same conversation in the car when I was Danny's age. I'd be like, I gotta go to the bathroom. My dad, my dad, be like, Oh yeah, you should have, you should have gone before we left. Now you're just gonna have to hold it in. And Mom would be like, that, that Irvin, where they reach Irvin, back can and we just, just... kind of smack you upside the head from the back seat? Oh yeah, yeah, I've I've, I've been in that car too, Scotty. <laughs> All right, so quickly let's let's move on a little bit more about the movie. You get that first 20 minutes, and it, it's already set up. Uh, this is going to be a spooky thing. Shit's about to go down. You've got all the pieces in play. And then at 26 minutes, you get Scatman Crothers coming and talking about The Shining. And they never mention the words telepathy or prognostication or anything involved yes, in mental powers. They, it, it, it's, almost, it's almost like Robert Kirkman took that page when he went and made The Walking Dead. Because in the entire Walking Dead franchise, comic books, all the TV shows, never the word zombie is never used. And you don't no. think about that because it's a zombie show. But what if this was what if what if this was a world where zombies had never been heard of? And they kind of Stephen King, Stanley Kubrick, they kind of take the same approach, which is I you know, uh, Scatman Crothers talking about I had it, my mother my mom and I had it, my grandma and I had it, excuse me, we could have whole yeah. no conversations. Yeah. Never do they use any ESP psychology. It's just The Shining. So Stephen gets to kind of rebrand it as mm-hmm. his own thing. But then you realize, okay, now this is not just a horror movie where somebody's going to go nuts because we've seen the trailer and the guy's holding an axe. There's a, something much darker and deeper going on. And it was really, 
really solid how they introduce that. Yeah, and I think that it's so interesting. <laughs> Rob is terrifying. <laughs> uh, it is interesting because I think if you hadn't, if you had not seen The Shining like we did last night, the the reason it's called The Shining is very easy to forget. Mm-hmm. It's very easy to forget, mm-hmm. and this is a key to the entire movie. And yet. Nobody's going to think about that. And at the beginning of the show, I, I or maybe I'm not sure if we were live yet. Um, there is Kubrick added uh, a low frequency um, human being saying shown very quietly to the to the music bed in yeah. pivotal scenes. So shown like S H or W N. S H O N E shown oh past shining past tense shining. You two are both full of knowledge that this I did is, not have. This is a wildly mind, over yes. This is a wildly <laughs> overanalyzed movie. <laughs> but but it's true, and people were like, no no no, you just hear that because you want to hear that. And then finally, they were like, no, here it is. It's very clear. Here's That's where so he good. had his uh, session, his recording session, so he could get the human to say shown, so that he could manipulate it and put it in the soundtrack. So we soundscape. Get- Hold on, before you move yeah. on, Scotty. The yeah. soundscape is also another way that makes you feel creepy. They'll be okay. random, just like a violin, just like randomly thrown in. There'll be there'll be people screaming. There'll be animal noises just randomly thrown in underneath everything else yeah. in the soundscape. That was Kruber just adding in well, weird little things to just make you feel uh, a little insecure about the whole thing. He actually talked to... Um, ad executives about the idea of subliminal advertising okay. and how they made people think about sex while they were selling, you know, Fresca or something like that. Right. He talked to ad execs and just tried to throw in all these weird little subliminal things to just make you feel geeky. There's something wrong here. And because of that, it just adds to the overall feel of the movie. Uh, one of the things that disappointed me as far as the lack of awards or or credit for this movie is mm-hmm. the sound editing is yeah. incredible. The okay. Just just oh, the scene yeah. alone of Danny riding his tricycle across the very expensive floors and very expensive carpets. And you go from that soft rumble on the carpet to that loud rattle on the floor. And it's... Oh. Over and over and over, and it's jarring. And all of the sound, all of the sound they recorded after the fact, it is, as a a bit of an amateur audiophile, bad sound can take me out of a movie in a heartbeat. Yep. And there is not, I, I did not see one one bad mistake with environmental sound, secondary Maybe. sound, primary sound. Everything is lights out through that whole movie, and it's uh, the it's great. And what's interesting about that is the same thing that you love because it was so well curated in The Shining of the hard floor carpet, hard floor carpet. Uh, there's another version of this when they go into room, finally go into room two thirty seven when when uh, Jack has his scene with the the person in the bathtub. I'll say <laughs> until we talk about it. Um, the 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 sound is completely different in that room. The sound mm-hmm. mixing is completely different in that room. And in any other movie, if it wasn't so precisely done, where you could watch it with you could see it happen with your eyes too, that would be a big problem for you. Yeah, for for lots of people. But but it's purposeful here, and you're just like, all right, all right that works. So I'm going to talk about one more scene real quick, uh, and this is part of. There's a reason that so many people who write fiction identify with Stephen King so heavily because so much of his fiction is about the writing process and the frustration. And, you know, for some people, the booze, the pills, the drugs, the just 
trying busting your ass all the time, not being able to break into the market. The at 45 minutes in, and I think Vaughn mentioned this scene earlier in the chat room, the uh, don't interrupt me while I'm writing scene is still, every time I watch that, I get flush, I get, I get, I get ashamed of my past behavior because uh, not with A, but if my ex, the evil queen, when I was not published, did not have a book deal and I was just banging away at this shit day in and day out, all Sundays, podcasting, recording, doing anything I could to scratch and claw and get away, get my, get ahead in this industry. We had several moments like that. We were in a very small one bedroom uh, apartment in San Francisco and I actually had to put up a curtain rod in the kitchenette type area to say, look, dude, when I'm in. When I'm in it to win it, it takes so long to get into the zone and you come in and stand by the table and start talking to me exactly like Shelley Duvall does. It takes me out of it and it's going to take me another hour just to get back to where I was and I probably lost shit. And we had we had some blowout fights, blowout fights where she would just ignore, okay, here's the stuff I need you to do, basically making her a prisoner in her own apartment because there was nowhere to go and she would come in and, and just be bored and come talk to me like Shelly Duvall or just like, Shelly Duvall wants to make motherfucker a couple sandwiches. Yeah. That's oh, what she's after. Yeah, that's she's it. offering to make you sandwiches, bro. I'm just saying. Yeah. Just saying. But you, when you are a creator and you are struggling, you can take that frustration out on the people around you and when they give you a ready excuse like fucking with your concentration. So that is always, that I thought is the single, out of all the great performances that Nicholson gives in that movie, that scene is the best because you can see him trying to be like, all right, we've had this conversation before. I'm going to try and be patient, but I'm already losing my patience. And then Shelley Duvall doesn't do anything wrong. She doesn't egg it on one way, but he just slippery slope. He's already on the way down by the end of it. He's just an asshole. Well, and remember, we find out later in the movie that what that motherfucker is doing <laughs> right. is typing over and over again. All work and no play makes Jack, Jack a dull boy. Fuck yeah. that dude. <laughs> Fuck that dude. It's interesting. If you watch that scene again, he's pretty calm and patient. You can see him right on the edge. Mm-hmm. It's when she says, and maybe you'll let me read some of what you've oh. written. Then he just fucking loses it. Because again, to A's point, he knows he ain't rich shit. Yeah, and he literally physically at that moment tears up the paper so she can't read it. Because yeah, if she reads it... Right, he hides it from her. And when, yeah. when you later realize what he is, when you watch that scene again, you see when she walks in, first thing Jack does, grabs the paper out of the typewriter and crumples it up oh, so she yeah. can't so good so this is an interesting thing Um, going back to uh this idea we mentioned it last week with the friend or the last time with the french connection too okay we get the benefit in 2020 of having so much information at our fingertips Mm -hmm. that just didn't exist in 1980 the only way you talked about this was around the water cooler at dinner with your friends things like that you didn't get to obsess about every little thing that said uh there's a huge huge amount of dissertation on the internet about All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy, Mm -hmm. Um, including screenshotting those specific pages. And sometimes instead of a dull boy, it says adult, which you can't you can't mistakenly do if you're touch typing, which he is. Okay, you have to because the T is all the way over. It's the other hand. So you have to choose to say that it's not a it's not a rapid typing mistake. Mm -hmm. And theoretically, Kubrick planned all that. It's possible. It's very, very, very possible. All right. Now we're going to talk about 
We're going to go over some of our, it's a horror movie, and there's some classic scenes. So we're going to go around the table here and talk about what we thought were the scariest, scariest scenes. To me, the two scariest scenes are, Danny's not here, Mrs. Torrance. And uh, <laughs> and that, and then, of course, Danny's not here, Mrs. Torrance, which is just so goddamn creepy, and the kid's voice yeah. is creepy. I don't know if they added that voice after the fact, or that was his actual voice. It's spectacular. And then... Then watching Danny build up a head of steam while he's standing next to his mother's bed where she's sleeping while he's holding a knife going, red rum, red rum, red rum, red rum. Like, I'm sorry, dude. I'm sorry. If we, if A and I should ever have a child and I wake up to my child screaming red rum while holding a knife, that motherfucker's getting a boot to the face and probably going (laughs) to die. It's going to be an automatic reaction. Like, I guess we got to try again because that one didn't make it. That's an amazing scene. And it's terrifying to me. Uh, Baby, what are you? Hold on. All Wendy does. She just kind of wakes up with a start, which, of course, you would do. And just like, oh, Danny, it just like calmly takes the giant <laughs> freaking knife away from him. Like, like, I don't know if that speaks to her. She's been enabling Jack's abuse of Danny for so long yeah. that nothing shocks her. Or maybe, I mean, this is right after she just belted her husband in the head with a baseball bat and dragged him into dry storage and locked him up. And she's sleeping Maybe she took a sleeping pill or something, but yeah, this is just like, oh, look, my son calling himself Tony now has a giant knife. I guess I will relieve him of that knife. (laughs) Baby, what do you think? What do you think was the scariest thing? Oh, Shannon, I know why we're friends. All the way, room 237 and that (laughs) bitch in the bathtub. Come on now. Bitch in the bathtub. (laughs) Come on now. Wait a minute. I understand that. When I first saw this, I was a 13-year-old young male watching it on HBO. And for three or four minutes of room 237. Yeah, it's pretty good. I was very excited about the lady in the bathtub. This is the reason I hate it so much, right? Why? Because because it was this salacious little look that you don't, I'm I'm your age, right? So you don't normally get to see. Uh And then it goes very, very badly, very, very quickly. And there's sloughing skin and, <laughs> and he's hugging her. No, no, then afterwards, he's backing out of the room and she's like, <laughs> she's like, I would like to know. Quick, now I'm watching the front of the falling off skin. Quick question. Quick question. You both can answer this. What the fuck is that bitch laughing at? What is she laughing at? Nobody told the joke. She's all giggly and laughing and whatnot. She uh, didn't get any dick. There's nothing going uh, on. What is she I'll laughing take, at? I'll take the easy answer, okay, which is it was all Kubrick's plan, and it's Jack's mind fucking with him. Okay. Rob, what do you think? She, what is she laughing at? I'm an old lady with rotting skin, and you just made out with me. <laughs> boom, 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 boom. That's, gotcha! That's, that's pretty funny. Speak, all right, now, Rob, on to you. Sir, what do you think was the scariest moment uh, in The Shining? So there's two times that you, there's actually three times that you see Danny riding around on his big wheel, right? And the whole cool thing, this is only about four or five years after a Steadicam was invented. This mm-hmm. is the first movie that really used a lot of Steadicam footage. They actually, okay. Kubrick hired the guy who invented the Steadicam to be his Steadicam cameraman. And for those scenes, they flipped the Steadicam upside down and pushed Garrett Brown, the cameraman, on a wheelchair to follow Danny around. And that's where that great sound of the carpet, hardwood. Is carpet, that original? Hardwood. That's actual genuine sound from that 
from- that is actual genuine sound. Wow. Kubrick didn't plan that, but when he saw it in the dailies, he's like, holy shit, that's the best thing I've ever heard. So they used it. So, but so twice Danny drives around in his uh, big wheel mm-hmm. and he keeps going around the corner. And as soon as he goes around the corner, it quickly swipes to him, mm-hmm. you know, going down. And two times, nothing happens. Right. The third time, Danny is riding around in the, uh, you know, suites where all the staff would stay. Mm-hmm. And the third time he rounds that corner and those two fucking girls are standing there in their little blue dresses. So he sucked us in thinking, well, nothing bad's going to happen. We've mm-hmm. already seen this twice. He's just showing us different parts of the hotel. And then all of a sudden, boom, right there, the Spooky two girls. Mm-hmm. And they say, hello, Danny, come play with <laughs> us forever. And then all of a sudden, there's a quick interstition of the two dead girls and the axe and blood everywhere. Yeah, yeah that's kind of right? disturbing, yeah. That, because he sucks you in thinking, well, nothing bad's going to happen. It's a five-year-old kid. They're not going to do anything bad to the five-year-old kid. Oh, yeah, they did some bad shit to the five-year-old kid. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we uh, we have gone to an hour now with this lovely chat with this lovely human being, Rob Otto. So we're going to quickly go through some of the themes in The Shining, get into the more conspiracy theory-esque versions of what Kubrick accomplished. Baby? I will tell you, if if any of this is of interest to you, there are zillions. All you oh, have to do absolutely. is is Google The Shining theories, and there's a zillion. Some of my favorites, though. My very favorite one is... Um, the color, the use of color. Uh, Kubrick uh, did this very purposefully. I do believe this was a choice of his. Um, okay. Specifically speaking, uh, I think that the theory that says that red and blue co- um, are are representative. Red is representative of death, and blue is representative of life. And you see these colors throughout the entire movie. You see them quite a lot in the beginning. Um, Danny and Wendy are always, always in red and blue. They're always in a car. You know, all this stuff is always them, always red and blue, always in the same red and blue. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, at the same time, that whole time that they are sort of matching, every time you see Jack Torrance, he's in green. Yeah. And then he starts to lose his mind and he looks like Rob Otto, right? He's, <laughs> Rob is dressed as Jack Torrance, if you can't tell, obviously. Uh, and what's lovely to me about this is when Jack finally gets on board with the family and joins the color scheme, uh, his are dead versions of those colors. They're much darker. There's black oh, mixed wow. in with both of them. Okay. He's got a dark blue and a crimson red, not this primary blue, primary red, which Wendy and and uh, Danny always wore. So that's my favorite. I, I think that has a a lot, a lot of legs, and I find it really interesting on a rewatch to kind of watch for that okay. because you okay. see, uh, like when they first go into the maze in the daytime and it's lush and it's green and there's no snow. Uh, Shelley Duvall is wearing this big, oversized red sweatshirt, which mm-hmm. she never otherwise does. She wears clothes that fit her otherwise, but she does that because she's sort of a beacon for Danny. Okay. I will always be here for you. You can always find me. Always come to me. Always look for me. Mm-hmm. Is that message kind of? And I love that one. Robbie, thematically, uh, you were talking about one before the show started. What was that? Yeah, it's it's the idea that the past is overlapping on the present, and there's two ways that they show that happening. One, Kubrick and a lot of scenes uses a very slow dissolve. So one scene is ending and instead of, you know, a quick dissolve that only takes, you know, three quarters of a second, Mm -hmm. he makes it last four or five seconds. So the past scene is encroaching on the current scene. And the idea being the past is affecting the present. 
it also makes these really cool. You get half of a picture of Jack's face staring off in that thousand yard stare while Wendy and Danny are walking through the maze mm -hmm. and it kind of overlaps. You'll see the, the you know, the long transitions mm -hmm. that also leads into all the mirrors, right? It starts yeah. right at the beginning, the Montana, you know, helicopter shot leading in. It's this gorgeous flat lake, but what it is, it's a mirror. It's mirroring the sky. And every time you see Jack talk to one of the ghosts, He's really looking into a mirror, right? In room 237. Mm -hmm. He makes out with the hot chick. It's not till he looks into the mirror, he realizes she's an old lady that's physically falling apart. Mm -hmm. When he meets Lloyd, the bartender, mirrors. the back wall is all mirrors. Mm -hmm. And then he looks up again and looks right in the camera and says, Lloyd, you were always my favorite. Then all of a sudden, the bar is full and Lloyd is standing there. When he's talking to Grady in the bright red blood colored bathroom yep. when he's trying to clean off stark blood white red yeah the bathroom mirrors the whole wall mm -hmm. is bathroom mirrors even when he's in dry storage talking to this Grady is my favorite the one park, they specifically put some silver cover over the door every other door you I didn't see even in notice the kitchen that. didn't mm -hmm. notice that like uh you know uh, has uh, the uh, three panels yeah this is sections right mm -hmm. there's light colored and silver colored they cover that whole door with silver. So it's kind of like a mirror mm -hmm. while he's talking to Grady on the other side. Grady was telling him, you're not living up to your contract. We made a deal. You told us you would do this. So every time Jack kind of goes crazy and talks to the ghost, there's a mirror. There's, a, there's a great, that, great scene that factors into that. On the present. Yeah. Great scene that factors into that, which is kind of his, uh, Jack's last gasp at sanity, which is... He's supposed to be in his room sleeping. He can't sleep. He's pretty screwed up. Danny comes up to get his fire truck toy. And the initial staging of that scene is here's Jack sitting on the edge of the bed in blue, mm -hmm. family color, but muted. Right. Here's a mirror of Jack. And then right, right in the center of that is Danny. Yep. And then you see him try to be a, a good guy, try to be a father. And then gradually he almost has... He almost has his sanity and his family back. He's back to normal. Then he loses it. Mirror factors heavily into that scene. Yeah, and I really love the um, the dry storage room is particularly uh, was particularly useful for me in trying to decide what I think was happening at the Overlook because he um, he is talking to Grady. And you hear the door open, but you never see the door. Never open. see it. And you it. never see him go through mm. it. So you don't know how he got out of that storage room. It could be that the ghost opened the door for him. It could be that that's a hallucination and he got out another way and that just made him crazier. I don't know. But <laughs> the um, the other thing in that bedroom scene that's so wonderful is when um, Danny comes to get the fire truck and he like Jack hugs him. You can look this up. There's a still. You can, you know, just Google the, the image. And Danny is so uncomfortable. He's mm -hmm. he's not touching him. He's he's like leaning in just as much as he ha at. I don't want to move away from the mic, but just as much as he has to to be part of the embrace. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, is keeping his body as far away as possible. And you've already sort of heard the um, that he had his dis his shoulder dislocated yep. by by his dad. Could happen to anybody. Yeah. Well, and it's also <laughs> there's a there's a there's a, another theory on the internet and certainly from the books that there might also be some sort of sexual abuse. So oh, he yeah, feels yeah, yeah. now it now I'm squicked. Now I'm yeah, squicked. I wasn't yeah, yeah, squicked. Yeah. And I, I don't know a ton about that, but it's certainly that in that point, one hold scene. On. 
So the first time Jack's at the Overlook when he's first meeting with Ullman, about to walk around the Overlook with his family, mm. and he's sitting there reading a magazine, finishing his sandwich. You know what that magazine is? No. It's a Playgirl magazine, and one of the articles listed on the cover is about incest. What? And it's a real Just magazine. Saying. And it's a real issue, I think, right? At it's least the, the cover real is. issue yeah. of, yes, they, they were able to check the picture, and you can see this on some oh, of the conspiracy crap. theory boards, mm-hmm. that it has an article on the cover about incest. And so, again, if Kubrick never made mistakes in his movie, he was specific. But think about this. You're about to be hired for a job. You're essentially doing a job interview and you're sitting there waiting there, reading a Playgirl magazine at the time. Well, which was apparently in the lobby, too. All right. We brought it with him. We've gone over an hour. So we're going to we've got one one question keeps coming up in the chat room. We're going to get to that shortly. Um, Vaughn asked a quick question. Another thing, if there's no supernatural, then how did he get out of the pantry? Yes. We watched Shelley Duvall be completely inept. Wendy cannot figure out how to work a latch, a door, so that we could possibly explain that. But clearly there is some supernatural, which brings us to... No, no, yeah, 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 good. I need to interrupt you, Scott. So yeah. here's the thing, right? That's the one thing you can't explain, right? Oh, yeah. the one thing, either, okay. Either Jack or... Danny, through Tony, made the scratches himself. You can explain that away. Yep. Mm-hmm. Jack getting out of the dry pantry. There's two excuses that could have been. One, when um, Halloran is showing them, there's a second door next to the freezer that could go into the pantry. Okay. There might be a second door. Okay. The other one is the theory is that Tony, when he takes over Danny, lets Jack out of the freezer. That makes sense. That's out of dry storage because after all the Bugs Bunny and Roadrunner cartoons that he watches, mm-hmm. right? He knows he can trick Jack into going into that maze in the middle of a freaking snowstorm. And uh, you know what? The only way I'm going to protect Danny from his father is to kill him. That's deep. Mm-hmm. That's so, deep. Mm-hmm. Right after Wendy locks Jack into the dry storage, mm-hmm. when she's talking to him through the door, there is a frosted flakes box okay. on the counter behind when and that's Tony Who is the mascot of frosted flakes. Tony, the tiger, yep. Tony, the tiger. <laughs> yep. This is Taurus. I'll take care of your Jack. Uh, you say, say what you got to say. Baby, we'll move to the final comment coming um, up from the chat room. So I agree with Rob. Or, well, I mean, everybody agrees with Rob because this is a known thing that uh, um, <laughs> I agree with me, too. This is a thing that cannot be explained unless you make a decision about the supernatural yes. in the movie. You okay. can't figure it out another thing way. You can't explain exactly. Which right. is in this idea that Kubrick never made a mistake. I I don't know if that's true or not. I don't think it is. I do think he was an an enormously talented filmmaker. And I do think that that decision he made on purpose. So so for you to appreciate the movie, however you're going to appreciate it, you love it, you hate it, whatever, you have to decide for yourself. You have yeah. to buy in. And once you buy in, it is supernatural or it's not supernatural, that every other domino falls into place for you. Then mm-hmm. all those, those um, Overlook Hotel employees, they're either hallucinations or they're ghosts. And I love that. I love this particular. Well, okay. I got one quick question. Answer this as succinctly as you you both can. Okay. If there's no, and then I'll move to the final question, which is a great question from the chat room. If there's no supernatural, how does Wendy see all that crazy shit? When she sees the bear giving the guy a Hummer and she sees the dude with the, the ax wound in his head. 
I'm having a fabulous time. What is Quite that? Quite a party, eh? That's it, Robbie. Yeah. If there's no supernatural, what is that shit? Well, this is just the thing. What you seem to be deciding is that those are not hallucinations. She could That's be That's supernatural. Too. Right? So she could be hallucinating, too. She is oh. also stuck in the woods in the snow. You know what's She's interesting about abused that? She's being abused by her, but at least emotionally abused by her husband. So this, you have to decide. Is it a hallucination? Or is it those are both of those things are from the book and contextual in the book, but in the movie as yeah. its own discrete entity, they have no relation or context to anything else. So mm-hmm. yeah, they totally could be random hallucination. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the whole pig dog bear thing, which was a dog pig in dog, the book bear. and is a bear in the movie, is I think just Kubrick didn't want to let that go, and that goes to the uh, the there's again going back to the sex thing. There's a homosexual undertone that Jack doesn't want to accept. He's he's reading a play girl. All right. There was actually a uh, scene edited out of the end. When it was originally released, this scene existed, and then they cut it out. Because remember, back in the day, they only had X number of prints, physical prints. And so a movie would open in different areas once at a time. That's why it only had made, what, 660000 the opening weekend? Because mm-hmm. it could only open in L.A., mm-hmm. for instance. So, okay. But there was a scene where Ullman, who's the guy that hires Jack in the first place, mm-hmm. visits Wendy and Danny in the hospital and says there's no physical evidence of anything other than him killing Halloran. I see. Right? There's no blood from the uh, you know thing. There's no other people. There's nothing wrong with the rooms. And so, but they edited that out, which is good because it lets these questions linger. Yeah. All right. So what is the chat room question? The chat room question is, it's a good one. We're gonna. What we're gonna do is, um, A is gonna take the first stab, then I will take the second stab, and we will allow the final axe thrust to be given to our uh, our delightful guest, the empty set movie maven, Rob Otto. A, a couple people asking in the room, what is going on with Jack Torrance being in the picture, the old picture, of the July Fourth celebration in the Overlook? What are your thoughts on that? So these are my thoughts. This is another thing that is up for endless discussion, but I believe that. The my take on it is the Overlook Hotel is inherently it is supernatural, okay. and I believe it is in it, it draws um, susceptible to evil people or flawed people, and that's what it's doing. It's uh, it's uh, consuming evil energy, oh, and so what happens is either the Jack Torrance we know is a reincarnation of that Jack, or uh, the Overlook is making it so Jack has always been the he's overwinter been caretaker. And mm-hmm. in his own mind, he can't deny it because he's all over the place. That's my my guess. Uh, I will I will say my initial thought with the way the movie played out on that picture is the uh, Overlook Hotel is a psychic predator. It's always probing and looking for people who know it's there. I can tell you guys, <laughs> we don't have time. Super messed up, super messed up story in college about a girl I dated who felt that she was an empath. So the ghosts would talk to her because she knew they were there. When I didn't know they were there, it was a lot of freaky stuff. <laughs> At any rate, so the, the Overlook Hotel is a character into itself. It is an immortal character that is constantly going out looking for people who can hear its siren song and lures them onto the rocks and the crash. And that group picture, I don't know the significance of the date of the year, but 19 July 4th, that is, that's its trophy room. The Overlook Hotel's trophy room is that picture. All the people it's got over the years. Oh, I love that idea. They all eventually wind up in that picture. But yours is great too, because 
you've always been the caretaker, Mr. Torrance. And he, mm-hmm. when he, when he's talking to the bartenders, like you've always been my favorite. You've always been my favorite, Lloyd. Yeah. Lloyd, you've always been my, and Lloyd knows what his drinks are, etc. Like there's something, there's some argument to be made for lo- logical consistency in the movie that you're right. He's always been there. It's just a reincarnation. Yeah. Robbie. Last thing. And this is one theory that people have talked about online that I think I can buy into. Um, Jack is in hell and reliving these months of his life over and over and over and over again. Okay, why do you say that? For instance, he says to Lloyd, right before Lloyd appears, Uh I would sell my soul for a glass of beer. Okay. Right? Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, Lloyd is there, right? And as you mentioned, Grady says, you've always been the... Uh, caretaker. Mm -hmm. And then you see at the end, the photo, 1921, July 4th, right? Right. Jack is living this. Oh, he has sold his soul. He has given his soul. It's the contract that he talks about when Wendy's about to hit him with the, uh, with the baseball bat, Mm -hmm. right? I don't my contract. What happens to me if I don't fulfill my contract? Okay. What happens to him is he lives these months of writer's block and killing his, trying to kill his wife and kid over and over mm-hmm. and over again. Hmm. And he's been reliving it since at least 1921. And mm-hmm. it just keeps updating the aesthetic. So the idea is, yeah, Jack's been trapped in this loose loop for at least 60 years. Okay. And he's going to continue dying at the end and never killing his son, never killing his wife, and always being the caretaker. Well, Danny is, Danny is a willful child. I mean, he does deserve to yeah, die. So, so there are a handful. We're not going to talk about them, but you can find all sorts of discussion on the internet. There's also, clearly, all three of the Torrances have mental illness. Jack has uh, what is pretty classically schizophrenia by the time you see him in the in the show. Um, obviously, Wendy is quite depressed and quite anxious and quite nervous. And, of course, Danny has an invisible friend who wants to kill people. Yep. So these are all uh, mental illness is a big thing. Um, the Overlook Hotel, as Rob mentioned, as either hell or purgatory or Hotel California, those those are those theories abound as well. Mm-hmm. And if you have the time and the interest, it would it would take up all of your November. There's <laughs> a rabbit hole. You yeah. can go down this rabbit hole. Trust me. The interwebs are good for this. Yeah. So, Rob, we have had a handful of folks in the in the chat room wish that you would come back and story smack with us again. So we'll probably ah. be seeing seeing if you would like to do that, I think. Well, good, because I have a whole bunch of notes that I typed <laughs> out even just for this one that we didn't quite get to. Let me <laughs> some of those. I've got some, some notes that I typed up that I haven't... <laughs> I haven't quite managed to get to yet. So, yeah, I would love to come back. <laughs> All right, Rob. I'm going to go now because this is very disturbing. Yeah. Very disturbing. Let's go back to Maine. Uh, I will also say that Rob, Rob and I have, have gone out and drank a bunch of times. But, that uh, made my whole day. You guys, yes, a lot of people in chat are saying, well, Rob, we will have Rob back on, I assure you. But Rob and I have gone out uh, consuming many times, and Rob and I are huge film buffs. And Rob, of course, knows one of my favorite movies is Pulp Fiction. So I will take out. It's me. Oh, I've been here the is. whole time. I've been here the whole time. And He's been here the whole time. <laughs> there are many moments. You've always been here. Many moments where uh, we're out and I will be, you know, mouthy or trying to be funny or whatever. And then all of a sudden, Rob, who's significantly taller and bigger than I am, will come up behind me and just, this hand will come on my head and just. <laughs> 
the gimp hand will come up, and it's very disturbing. So, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we're now going to go into, our, go into our outro script, which I think I have here somewhere, baby. Do mm-hmm. I not? Uh, are we talking about that? Uh, oh, yes. Oh, no, go no, on, no, sweetie. This. No, go um, ahead. This. Yes. Are we talking about oh, the next story, Smack? That's right. We will be back in two weeks. What's that date, sweetheart? Do you know? I don't. She's going to look at Washington. Our, in two weeks, if Rob is amicable, we'll ride back on to talk about Caddyshack, one of the finalists in the Gizmo tournament. So we're going to talk about Caddyshack. Uh, November 14th. November 14th. We'll be back at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern to talk about Caddyshack. And uh, we will be, that's, that'll be our next Story Smack. Should be a good time. Yeah. And uh, that is it for episode 59 of Story Smack. Uh, you can find Scott and I online. I am at a.real.girl on Instagram, and I am a real, at a real girl on Twitter. And Scott is uh, at Scott Sigler on Twitter and Instagram, and his Facebook page is facebook.com slash Scott Sigler. We do Story Smack twice a month, every other Saturday. You can find us online at facebook.com slash Story Smack. You can, if you're only hearing this right now in the feed, you can watch these live, live streams, which is redundant, but you can. You can watch these live or recorded live streams at facebook.com slash Scott Sigler twitch.tv slash Scott Sigler and youtube.com slash Scott Sigler. And in case you guys don't know, in addition to every other week Story Smack, we do twice a week live streaming on facebook.com slash Scott Sigler, twitch.tv slash Scott Sigler, or youtube.com slash Scott Sigler. We call it Sigler in Place. It starts at 6 p.m. Pacific time every Tuesday and Thursday. Not this coming Tuesday, though, because mm-hmm. it's election day election in the United day. States. And uh, we just hang out for an hour and chat with you guys and try and make this crazy year a little less crazy. And I released unabridged episodes of one of my audiobooks every Sunday. You can go to scottsigler.com slash subscribe. Subscribe in a number of different areas. Number of different ways uh, my books come out. I give them away for free. You can listen to them. You get a dose every week. You should subscribe because you'll hear more stories, Mac. You'll get live weekly fiction and you can join us for Sigler in Place. And let's, uh, let's one last question. We were supposed, the script said say goodbye to Rob, but can't get enough of Rob. Rob, <laughs> will you come back next uh, a week from, two weeks from today to talk about Caddyshack? Well, I'll work and no play <laughs> Jack and boy. So I, I think I can make that. And do you want to share any of your socials? I'm not sure how, how interested in your socials you are, but if you would like people to follow you, you can let us know where. Yeah, I would have to know myself. <laughs> That's why I said it that way. Socials, I, I think right. we'll just go with yours. We're going to sign off. I've never done a pre-scheduled event, so I literally have no idea whether you guys will be staring at a blank screen here in a second. <laughs> everybody, let's give them the big, the big dating game kiss. Goodbye, everybody. Rob, you too. Ready? Three, two, one. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.